John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and did as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of the water of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink, to draw water. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the light and life that is in it. That even as we read these passages and we consider, perhaps if we know the rest of the story, where this conversation is going, if there's a joy welling up in our hearts as well, thinking of how the Samaritan woman is responding to what Jesus is saying and, and thinking about how we have responded to what you've revealed to us by your word, by your spirit, through conversations with other people, drawing people to you. We pray, Lord, this morning that you would help us to see the testimony of Christ and that you would help us to proclaim that same testimony of living water, that that living water would indeed be a spring in our hearts, welling up and gushing out, pouring over into the lives of those that we know and those that we meet. We ask for your help now by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title this morning is A Spring of Water Welling Up. And our series in John, which we've been away from for 12 weeks now, is focusing on the idea of John's testimony to the Son of God. And that in this book, we actually see the word testimony many, many times. We've already seen it in the first three chapters that we've looked at. But in fact, the whole book itself is a testimony to the Son of God. And that testimony, even especially in places like John chapter 4, is coming directly from the mouth of Christ. Who he is, why he's here, what he has to offer. If you could just erase your minds for a second of everything you know about the Bible and the gospel and just consider where you are apart from God, and if God was going to come and see you, what would you anticipate? What would you fear, perhaps? Would you have any reason to hope in what God has to say to you? Would it only be a concern that the lack in your life, whatever that may be, 
is something that's created a great distance. And if he were to bridge that distance and come into your life, what would that mean? Well, we who know Christ, of course, know what that means. But I want you to be thinking in the eyes of this Samaritan woman who, of course, doesn't come to the well and says, hey, that guy looks like the Messiah. Yeah, I think that's definitely him. But he was a Jewish man sitting at Jacob's well. She was a lot of potential emotions going on there. But obviously, this passage over and over and over again has to do with what substance Right? You hear it. You hear water being spoken of. You hear of a spring, of a well. You hear the word drink and thirsty and all these kinds of things. I mean, this is what John really wants us to focus in on. So we're going to take this conversation that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman and break it into three parts. Lord willing, today we're looking at the first 15 verses. Um, Then we'll take the next section and then kind of end at verse 42 um, in the next two weeks. But I want you to think about the importance of this illustration of water in this passage, but of course throughout all of Scripture. We see it in a lot of different places. Are you drinking enough water? And I mean like right now, like this kind of stuff. Are you, are you prompted in the morning to fill up a water bottle? Maybe choose this over coffee. I know that sounds like an impossible task to many of us. We know that water is good for us. We've known that, right? And really, we don't need to be told, but I'm going to tell you anyway why it's good for you. Because I think there's an interesting parallel that when we come to what Christ has to offer, we'll see, that, we'll see the significance of why the Bible refers to water so often in, in both positive and negative ways. But we drink water to be refreshed. When we drink water, it produces energy. It decreases your hunger. It boosts your metabolism. It increases your focus, it flushes out toxins, it deals with pain relief, it helps your digestive health, and it can even put you in a positive mood. Water has a lot to do biologically in your life. It's no wonder our bodies are made up of some large percent of water, right? I don't know what it is. This is too much science for me already, to be honest. We need to move back away from this. But you can see in your daily life the difference that water makes, right? When you've had enough of it. Even if it's just that dry mouth feeling of like, something's wrong. Oh yes, I haven't had any water today. That happens to me a lot, I feel like. In the hustle and bustle of life, there's not always that time that we make to stop and take a drink of water, as simple as that sounds. And then we get into those, those things, right? You read something online about how important it is to drink water, which is what I did for this last list. You read that and you go, oh my goodness, I need to be drinking water. And then you're like, that's it. I'm going to fill up my water bottle 70 times tomorrow. And I'm going to drink all the water I can. And you're taking restroom breaks every 10 minutes. And it's just, it's a shock to the system. You're like, whoa, what's with all the water? What's with this this springing up well that's coming into the body and flushing toxins and, and, and having such a grand effect? Water in the Bible has that kind of effect too, both in a positive and a negative sense. What Old Testament story, perhaps, comes to your mind first when you think of water? Early Genesis-type story. Huh? Noah and the flood, right? Yeah. Positive or negative uh, illustration of water there? It's negative, right? God doesn't come to Noah and say, guess what, Noah? I'm going to flood the whole earth, right? 
But when you go into the average church nursery, what do you see painted on the walls? You see Noah waving to the kids with all the animals and the, the waters underneath. You're like, you didn't like paint the bottom part where, you know, all the people are drowning and the world is being destroyed, right? Water can be a terrifying thing. It can, it can, when the Bible talks about water in the negative sense, it's talking about things like the flood or other floods or, or even the ocean for much of history. The ocean was not, you know, the, the, oh, I can't wait to get to the ocean. I just want to see the ocean. People were terrified of the ocean. They didn't want to have anything to do with it unless they absolutely had to. Bruce taught us this morning about the pilgrims coming over on the Mayflower and, and immediately there was one story about the main mast cracking, right? Um, Oh, my goodness. And the terrible conditions of traveling across the ocean. It's, it's a very scary thing. But the Bible also talks about water in positive sense. Of course, here in this passage that we're going to look at is very positive, a living well. It, it gives life, right? You need to water a garden to give it life. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 11 through 12. Uh, Jeremiah says, The Lord has ransomed Jacob, that is his people, and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Their life shall be like a watered garden. And they shall languish no more. Water has strong connotations for either life or death. For love and grace and for good or for fear and bad and for death. Jesus has had, by way of uh, review here, Jesus has had a handful of conversations already with people post uh, calling his disciples to himself. And of those conversations, we see two of them have a lot to do with water. Uh, most recently in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus, who was a religious leader of the time. And Nicodemus was meeting Jesus at night, and Nicodemus says, Hey, we, I believe you. You're a teacher from God. This is incredible stuff that you're talking about. And then Jesus says, Hey, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Well, what do you mean born again? He says, Unless you're born of water and of the Spirit. Unless there's a new life put in you that is a spiritual life, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And of course, Nicodemus takes this all literally. How do I, how can I be born again? Am I supposed to enter back into my mother's womb? I mean, what an outrageous question to ask, right? And yet he asks it because he's thinking on a physical plane. And we'll see that this woman from Samaria is doing the exact same thing in this conversation. You might have picked it up in verse 15. Look at that again really quickly. Sir, give me this water. We know Jesus is talking about living spiritual water that has to do with eternal things and spiritual value. But in verse 15, in this part of the conversation, she says, give me this water so that I can have eternal life and spend eternity with God and everything will be good. No, so that I won't have to come back here and draw water. So that I won't have to come back to the well. I don't like doing this. We, many of us you know, who know this next part of the story and what's going to come out about her life, we'll, we'll see next week, Lord willing, why she's most likely coming at this unfortunate hour of, of, heat of the, the heat of the day. And so for her, the idea of what God might have to offer her all centers on the physical plane. It, it doesn't, doesn't spring up beyond that, even though Jesus specifically says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. It will become in him a spring of water welling up to what? To eternal life. He's not talking about regular, everyday, fill your water bottle kind of water. He's talking about more than that. 
So we'll see in Jesus' presentation, because we want to look at this passage in two kinds of ways. One, we need to understand something very important about salvation that is pictured by this idea of living water and what actually happens to a person when they've believed in Christ, when they've been redeemed by him from sin and brought into eternal life. But the second thing has to do much with what Tim has already talked about, that testimony that comes from that. And so we want to observe what Jesus is teaching and understand our relationship to the teaching, but we also want to observe how he's teaching this and what this spring of water wells up to do because it does not simply end with a change in our life, but it is meant to pour out abundantly into the lives of people around us. So I have an outline for you if you want to know, um, a good alliterative one this week if you're excited about that. We're going to look at it in three parts. The first is a divine direction as we consider Jesus and his move from Jerusalem back into, or Judea, sorry, sorry um, back to Galilee. So we have a divine directive. We're then going to have a doubt-filled dilemma as we see the woman's response to Jesus. And then we're going to end with considering the deep desires, both of Jesus and of this woman that he has an important conversation with. But overall, we're going to see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 42 in the weeks ahead, that a presentation of the gospel is meant to be met with repentance and then lead to testimony. That's what we learn from this, this incredible story that, that sounds so normal and everyday, right, for that setting. Not that we go to the well and draw water and have conversations there, but, I mean, this could very well be a grocery store conversation that you would have with another person that, that, could, that could expand beyond just a simple, have you noticed the price of bananas and whatever this week, uh, into What's the price of your soul, for instance? But the divine directive, the divine direction. Look again at verses 1 through 6 here with me. Jesus hears that the Pharisees have heard that he was making disciples and that he was even making more disciples than John. Well, the Pharisees already don't like John, and the fact that Jesus is now making even more disciples than him, we can kind of surmise from the context here that Jesus is saying, hey, it's not time yet for me to have a showdown with the Pharisees, right? It's not exactly the time for me to be going head-to-head with them. We're going to see that later in the Gospels. So he says, I'm going to leave Judea, I've already done the thing in the temple. I've already cleared it out. I've already told people, hey, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it back up. And they didn't get that either. So he's going to head back home. And there's such a great verse in this context here. In verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. In verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. This is a question that has kind of been on my mind all week. Why did he have to pass through Samaria? Obviously, if you look at your maps and your study Bibles and whatnot, you'll see that the quickest route from Judea in the south up to the north of Galilee is going to be straight through Samaria. It's going to be the easiest route. It's going to avoid mountains. It's going to be, I think it's a three-day journey. It's the most natural one. But we also know something about Samaritans, don't we? Because the Samaritans are of what we call the northern kingdom of Israel, right? And the split between the northern and the southern created a lot of aggressive feelings, right? The Jews in the south did not really care too much for the Samaritans of the north. And so in verse 4, when it says he had to pass through Samaria, 
it seems that there's a double meaning to this. First of all, it didn't make sense for him to travel around Samaria to get back to Galilee. That would expand his trip far beyond what he wanted to do. And really, Jews would go ahead and take the same route that Jesus did if they had to go from the south to the north, because it just didn't make any sense. Even that extreme uh, aggression that they had towards Samaritans, they would still say, all right, let's just you know, kind of put our heads down and get through Samaria and not have anything happen. But that's the second meaning behind Jesus having to go through Samaria. Because we can tell from this conversation that he had to have this conversation. Jesus, how about this? Jesus never did anything by accident. He didn't sit wearied at the well as we see there and go, oh no, there's somebody coming up here. I was really just hoping to get a moment alone. I sent my disciples ahead to just go get food, guys. I'm just going to sit here for a second. I just want to be alone. It's not at all what Jesus is doing. He is intending to have this seemingly random happenstance conversation with the Samaritan woman. And we so often look at these kind of things in our lives because we might have stories of our own or stories that we've heard of, you know, running into people at the grocery store or at a park or wherever we were. And, and wow, the spiritual conversation came out of that. And we treat it as though we're like, well, Lord, I, if, if randomly I happen to have a, an important conversation with people over spiritual matters, uh, help me to be prepared for it. But I'm not planning on it. I'm maybe sometimes even hoping it doesn't happen at all. This is not Jesus' attitude whatsoever. He has a divine direction. He had to go through Samaria. He had to meet this unnamed woman of Samaria and have this very important conversation. So let's look at what he says here. The woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. And you can see from John's very helpful parenthetical notes, there's three of them in this section, in parentheses, he gives us some explanation. So if you've never read this before and you don't realize what the significance of this is, in verse 8, John says his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food, so he is alone. And then we have another one um, back in verse 9, or ahead in verse 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus is very much a Jew. He was born a Jew. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He's, he's from the south in that sense, not like how we understand from the south here today, of course. A little different. But he asks this woman, give me a drink. And it's interesting because it looks very, you know, hey, you, it's not as though Jesus is saying, hey, you Samaritan woman, give me a drink. Come on, what's, that, that wouldn't have made sense at all. If he looked down on the Samaritan woman, he wouldn't be asking for a drink. Okay, he's, he's actually inviting her into a conversation by this. Yeah, his disciples had gone away. He didn't have any other way of getting a drink. And it's fascinating too because we're also talking about Jesus, Right? A testimony to Jesus, who is the what of God? The Son of God. Equal with the Father and the Spirit. Needing nothing for all of eternity past. When he comes into the world, A.W. Tozer says that need is a creature word. It is not something that is in the divine vocabulary. God does not need anything. And yet, Jesus in taking on human flesh and becoming one of us, still fully divine, still the Son of God, comes to a place where he needs a drink. And even, in fact, it says that he was wearied. 
I love these are just great little side notes that John says here that speak so deeply about a testimony of who Jesus is. Because remember, he didn't have to be wearied. He didn't have to need a drink. For all of eternity past, he never needed anything. And he chose in obedience to the Father's commission to him to come down to earth and be wearied for our sake. And to need a drink, to be thirsty, just like any one of us. If you knew who it was who says to you, give me a drink, everything would have changed, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman. You're focusing so much on what I just said and thinking about all the levels. You're a Jew. You're a man. I'm a woman. You're a, a rabbi. Maybe she could tell something of, of his uh, stature, of his position, that he was, in fact, one who had disciples, perhaps. She could see all sorts of differences between him and her and said, why in the world would you want to drink from me? Just like Jesus came to Nicodemus to tell him the gospel, to share with him what his deep need is, Jesus also comes to this outcast, this person who is out of the way, this person who would have even perhaps considered herself to be a throwaway background character in the grand scheme of God's story. He says, if you knew who I was, it would change everything because I wouldn't be asking you for a drink. You would be begging me. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying you get to you, give, a, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he's identified himself here. He's testified already to who he is. If you understood this, if you knew who I really was, who I really am, it would change everything. And so even as this conversation starts off, he wastes no time in taking advantage of the context of the well, does he? He sees a clear opportunity in talking about water and talking about a well and says, hey, give me a drink. But you know what? If you knew who I was, you'd be asking me. And I'd give you something far better than a cup of cold water. It would be living water. Now, he doesn't go so far as to explain what that living water is yet. And so naturally, her question to him makes a lot of sense. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than Jacob? The string of questions that follow show the conflict in her heart. That earthly alternatives have left her thirsty and doubting because that's all she's known. Because she's apart from God. And this is where we all are apart from Christ. If we do not know him, if we don't have that living water that he's talking about, then we're going to understand the words of Jesus to the Samaritan woman just the way she understood it. Living water to us sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Well, in her first acceptance of those words, she's hearing living water. You're talking about water that comes directly from the source where it's springing out. Okay, you know how a well works, right? You dig a hole, you get water, water comes up and fills the well, and the water sits there so that you can scoop it out and take it and use it for whatever you need. He's saying, give me a drink. She says, you want me to take my Samaritan woman cup and fill it up with water and give it to you, and you're actually going to drink out of that cup? And he says, well, if you ask me, I would give you living water. You're telling me you're going to go 100 feet down Jacob's well and find the source and give me that water, that seems like a little bit much. It seems a little bit unnecessary. Along with that idea of a spring, there would have also been a spiritual connotation in her mind as far as ritual purity. 
Because as you, if you would go about the rituals in the Old Testament, which we won't get too far into today, you would see that there's, there's a need for living water, for running water, for cleansing yourself, not just water that is sitting somewhere. If you wanted to be made pure, and, and that might have angered her. We're making some speculation here about this Samaritan woman, but we'll see from her questions in verses 11 and 12 that she is a little bit, she's responding negatively in some way to Jesus. And so even this notion of living water having something to do with purification probably upset her a little bit. See, you're just like every other Jewish man, I'm sure, however many I've met or whatever. All my expectations are, you, you think I'm unclean because I'm a Samaritan. She's filled with doubt, and she faces a dilemma that she doesn't even really know. So let's look at these three questions more specifically. A drink from me, a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were in the northern kingdom, as we said. Uh, the, the whole idea of becoming a Samaritan started in 722 when the king of Assyria uh, took, brought brought a bunch of the people in the north to exile and brought in a bunch of foreigners and they intermarried and they were no longer the pure line of Israel anymore. Now they are Samaritans. And so her question, why me and why you, makes a lot of sense for the social context. Secondly, she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. You have nothing to draw with. Isn't it interesting? Again, Jesus is thinking on this spiritual level, on this eternal context, far beyond what she's thinking of. And it's amazing because in her doubt, in her dilemma that she's facing, she actually is speaking very clearly about what she thinks about God because she's speaking to the Son of God. And so she's saying, in a temporary sense, you don't have a bucket even. And you're not going to swim down 100 feet and get that living water and bring it up pure and refreshing for me. You have nothing to draw with. And yet those first words, you have nothing, is so indicative of our lostness before Christ, isn't it? That we would look at God and say, you have nothing for me. You have nothing to offer me. And in fact, even though many of us have come to know Christ, we still, at times, during our day, during our week, during our months, we function as though Jesus has nothing to draw with. He has nothing to offer me. I live in 2021. Jesus is a 2,000-year-old idea. The world has changed. Things are different. The context is radically beyond what Jesus could have ever spoken to back then. He has nothing to draw with. So where is he going to get this living water? And then verse 12, you can hear the tension rising in her questions even more because she doesn't stop and say, what do you think about that? She continues asking in and, and verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. He actually did something for us. You Jews don't care whether we live or die, but Jacob, all those generations before, dug this well out for us. He gave it to Joseph. We're relying on it day by day by day. And what have the Jews ever done? left us here and all our hope is in something that was given to us long long ago Jacob has not only given the well to them but he's also given his name Israel to the nation of God's people of course he's a significant person he's certainly not perfect and she's not focusing on that part of his story but she's focusing on this who do you think you are Jesus your testimony doesn't make any sense to me give me a drink and then I would have given you living water. 
She's rejecting it. She's doubting it. And inside there's a dilemma because there's going to be a conviction that is going to be moving very quickly into her life that she's going to have to face the the struggle of her temporary needs and her eternal need that she has largely ignored. For us, apart from Christ, we face the exact same thing. Jeremiah 2.13, a very famous passage of, of God communicating through the prophet Jeremiah what God's people's problem is. He says in verse 13, my people have committed two evils. He boils all of the sin of God's people down to this. They have forsaken me. They've rejected me. They've said, I don't need God. You have nothing for me. You have nothing to draw with. The first evil is they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And then later on in verse 18, Jeremiah says to the nation, now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of Euphrates? We look for alternative water sources. And it's the difference between drinking from a living spring that God has to offer and drinking out of this water bottle next week. If I were to just leave it as it is. I'm not going to say I've never done that before because I've been pretty thirsty. But there's a difference, right? Fresh water as opposed to water that's just sat still and has truly nothing to offer. That's the difference between our seeking things in the world rather than seeking the living water that Christ has for us. Rejecting the source for something that can be bottled, something that we can even pretend to have some kind of control over. Now, the Samaritan woman, again, if you know what comes next in the conversation about her history, you can imagine that she wants to have some sense of independence, some sense of control in her life. And this conversation with Jesus has afforded her an opportunity to kind of let some of these feelings out for a second and say, yeah, listen, I don't like what you're talking about. It doesn't make sense to me. She's lost entirely the voice of the psalmist when David writes, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear in God's presence? That is the state of the woman's soul in her conversation with Jesus because she is thirsting for God, whether she recognizes it or not. And she realizes, or she's going to realize, when she realizes who she's talking to, that she is, in fact, in the presence of God. And that's what David said in verse 2 here, when shall I come and appear in God's presence? That's what I need. I need to be with him. My soul knows that. My flesh wants to do everything contrary to that. And that's why it's so hard for you, it's so hard for me, to in the morning wake up and open this thing up and stop for a second and drink from the living water that he's given to us. We have all sorts of reasons for that. We talked in our men's group yesterday, too, about how, how quickly we, we, we might even open up God's word, and then the list happens. You know, all the things that I have to do. And even if I continue on through reading the chapter I'm looking at, I'm really thinking about, yeah, but i got to get to work. i, I got to do this. I have that after work. And, oh, my goodness, if I don't get this project done, It piles on and on and on, and it drowns out the voice of our eternal need. 
with everything temporary. It's, it's saying, I need physical water, but I don't need spiritual water. I do not need eternal life. I don't need that kind of well that bubbles up in that way. And that's what Christ has come to make a difference with. So, so we have our divine direction. He's intended to come to speak to her. We have the doubtful dilemma. She has to face the reality of what he's about to tell her. And now we have the deep desire revealed to us in our last section. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's starting to unravel what he's really talking about. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again because the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up all the way to the extent of eternal life, which Jesus has been very focused on in all of his conversations have to do with eternal life, of being born again, of making things right. That's what he's come to do. He speaks with wisdom to bridge that temporary need that she senses to the eternal need. She still doesn't get it yet, and our passage today is not going to end with her saying, oh, I see what you're talking about. But he's sowing the seeds in there to where the reason that at the end of the story that she runs off and leaves her water jug at the well and tells everybody to go and see this man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? The reason that she does that is because it all makes sense. Because she does then, in fact, drink from the living water that Christ has to give. And it does become a spring welling up in her and overflowing changing her desire entirely from just saying, man, you know what I'd love? To never have to come to this well again. I would love, even though I'm so grateful for what Jacob did, because this is my only water source, Jesus, if you're telling me that you could give me a water fountain that would never run out, that I would never have to return to, then I'm in, because it satisfies a physical and temporary need. And her desire is transformed by what Christ has to offer to her. Jacob's well in his field was a great gift to his son Joseph. It became a great gift to Samaria. Are you greater than Jacob? She says to him. And we know the answer is yes. Jesus is in a completely different category than Jacob, isn't he? Jacob, the patriarch, the giver of the well, the giver of the field, the giver of the name, the giver of so many things who could never give a single thing except for what God himself has given to Jacob. And Jesus is that source, that spring welling up in the lives of his people to give from generation to generation as Jacob had. Jesus was wearied, as we said earlier. He was wearied because he traveled like every normal person after that much traveling is going to say, I need a break. But it's deeper than that because we know when we read those things that we have to think about the extent of the weariness that Jesus reached. He went to the extent of dying on a cross, of becoming that weary for us, of becoming that thirsty on our behalf, taking the punishment that we deserve and making everything right between us and God so that he could break that the the dam that sin has built between us and that living water so that it could pour forth into our lives. It's not just a, a slight trickle. It's not as though he put a faucet and just said, hey, look, here, look, I kind of fixed this a little bit. It's still holding back a whole bunch of this water, but there's a little faucet now, and you can take a drink if you want. No, he's, he's broken down the wall. What happened in the temple when Jesus died? What happened to the curtain? It was torn in two from top to bottom. 
The way into God's presence is made perfectly open, abundantly open to us. That's what the living water is. And the living water, of course, has much to do with an allusion to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who will come and apply the work of Christ to our lives and transform us and make us new. 1 John 5, 11 says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. That is the gift that he wants her to know about. He gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. We cannot have eternal life and be separated from Jesus at the same time to any extent. Right now, we don't see him with our eyes, but he's living by his spirit in the hearts of all of his people as that living water, that spring gushing out, transforming every element of our lives, quenching our human thirst for God, not with a cup, but with a bubbling over spring, welling up all the way to the extent of eternal life. And this is important for this reason too. The gift of salvation is encompassed in all of this. Justification, our being made right with God. Sanctification, that growth process where we grow more like Jesus and less like ourselves. And then all the way up to glorification, the, the whole spectrum of eternal life is covered in what Christ has done on the cross for his people. And because that is true, we then have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. All of the promises of God are yes and amen for us because that well that has now been dug in our hearts never runs dry. It never leaves us thirsty. Just like those multiple benefits of water here on earth for our physical bodies, this Living water has an endless supply of benefits and of joys and of transformative work to be done in us. And the extent of it to eternal life alludes to the fact that we are secure in him. That if you have repented of your sin, if you've been transformed, if you're new in Christ, there's no way to lose that living spring. He's not going to some say, hey, someday say, hey, I'm putting a cork in that living spring and you're done. I'm cutting you off. It's an endless supply, a perpetual grace pouring into the lives of God's people and out into the lives of those around them. Jacob's gift was a temporary source for physical life, but Christ's gift will transform this Samaritan woman entirely and forever. She now is not going to be one who comes to the well in the heat of the day so that she can probably avoid other people. She's actually going to start going towards those people that she's been avoiding to testify to them. And that is the completed work. That is the, the work that he's doing in his people. That we would walk with an awareness of what Christ is in us right now. That we don't need to move from spiritual high point to spiritual high point. So often we live as though we're saying, yeah, I had a really great Sunday, and then this Sunday wasn't that great, and then this thing happened, and that thing happened, but then this really great spiritual mountaintop experience happened. And so I've been riding that momentum all the way until the next day, and then I'm out. I'm dry again and thirsty. Christ has no intention of leaving us thirsty, church. He wants us to be satisfied in him, to be content in him. And so he gives us this spring, this living water, as we think about this woman's response and try to characterize her, there's a lot of options. She might have been motivated sarcastically in her response. Are you greater than Jacob? She might have been lazy in her hope. Boy, yeah, she, I'm tired of hugging, uh, hauling water jugs out up the hill to the, to the well and then back up to my house. Man, I would love to just not have to do that work anymore. It might have been sarcasm. It might have been laziness. It might have been anxiety. 
might have had an anxious soul just saying, oh, I, I know something's wrong. It's hard to characterize that. But J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on John 4, so helpful. He says, in regards to trying to figure out where this person is, he says, when we're sharing the gospel with people and testifying to them of what's going on, and we, we are hoping for a response, right? I mean, who isn't hoping when you share the gospel that that person wouldn't just fall to the ground and repent in sackcloth and ashes and say, what must I do to be saved? Like, we all want that kind of response. J.C. Ryle says, in regards to the soul hearing the beginnings of the gospel, if it breathes at all and says, give, we ought to be thankful. So even her limited scope in verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus doesn't say, all right, that's it. You don't get it. I'm out of here. He's going to continue the conversation. He's going to get to a really rough part. He's shared the gospel, as it were. He's shared that there is good news. There is something to be offered. But there's something that she has to do. She has to deal with where she is in her life right now. And she has that dilemma going, is going to come to a head in verse 16 when he simply says, go and call your husband and then come back here. We, like her, have to deal with where we are in our nearness to God, in our love for sin, in that love that, that sneaks back up, that, that temptation that, that continues week by week, day by day, month by month, year by year, those challenges that we face now that we wonder why are they still going on anyway. We have to deal with those things and rely on this well, this spring that is welling up in our hearts. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, 17, towards the end of the whole book of the Bible, the message is this from the Spirit of God and from the Bride of Christ. Verse 17, the message is this, come. And let the one who hears say, come. So he's, the church and the Spirit are meant to work together to call out to the world and to say, hey, come to these living waters. Come to find this hope that springs up eternal in us. And the second part says, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Christ did not die so that we could come up with something nice to offer him in return. Paul says that we ought to offer our lives as a living sacrifice, as our reasonable service of worship. It's only reasonable that we would say, if Christ died for me, I must live for him. I must live by that living water that he's afforded for me at the cross. So are you drinking enough water? Now, I don't mean from the bottle of water on your table or in your car or wherever you drink water, but are you actually drinking from the water that Christ has dug in your heart and brought up that spring of living water for you? And if you don't know him, do you want to? Do you want this living water so that you would never be thirsty? We don't need to take a daily trip to the well for the Spirit of God to overflow in our lives. We simply need to trust him. We simply need to keep in step, as Paul says, keep in step with the spirit, to follow him, to lay down our own plans and trust in what he's provided for us. Don't let times of weariness stop you to where we, like Jesus, might have stopped at that well and said, I'm so glad we're taking a break. Oh no, Jesus is doing ministry again. Okay. Don't let weariness stop you because it's in those times of weariness that the Spirit of God wants to move powerfully, right? Because in our weakness, his power is made perfect. And he empowers us to testify 
to Christ, even in our weakness, even in ways that don't seem so impacting. We have the spring. We are secure in the spring. And we need to face these opportunities in our weariness even as opportunities to proclaim Christ, to testify to him. So would you this week prayerfully listen for those opportunities and not take them simply as, hey, if this randomly happens, no, would you consider that God might be planning on you testifying? That God is not saying like, oh, oh, I didn't expect you to run into so-and-so at the grocery store this week. He totally expected you to do that. And he's expecting what's going to come this week. He knows what's going to come. Would you prayerfully Listen and keep your eyes open for those opportunities to testify, to let that living water pour out from your life. I'm not saying come up with something amazing to share with somebody. I'm saying share what God has done in your life with another person. That is the hope that springs eternal. That's what we're going to sing about here in a moment. We also want as a church to consider how we can reach our neighborhoods. That's why things like the Halloween trick-or-treat event is a good opportunity, not only to pass out candy, but to express the love of Christ, to let that living water flow out from us. That's why the Harvest Festival is a good opportunity to draw people in and say, hey, come to the well that never runs dry, as we say at the beginning. Let anyone who desires to take the water of life take it without price. The one who is thirsty, come. Would you bow your heads with me, please, and pray? Father, I thank you this morning that though we might feel thirsty, we might feel like the well of our hearts is running dry, it is not if we're in Christ. We're simply drinking from broken cisterns that can't hold water. We're simply looking around to meet our physical needs and then take care of our spiritual needs. Lord, you have made it clear in your word time and time again and this morning, that we need to deal with our deepest need first. Lord, would you help us to be aware of that? To honor you with what we've received by being obedient, by being zealous, and even being willing to enter uncomfortable conversations for the sake of making Christ known, giving him the glory that he deserves. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.